everyone. Welcome to another episode of First Strike. I just realized kind of weird I didn't use my uh, We Are Live to start things off, but uh, we're shaking our heads. Welcome. Uh, it's been a great, great year. I can't believe it's been likely 52 episodes. I don't know if we skipped one or not, but here we are. And I've got two of the original crew in the house. Brian and, and Robin Lombardi, but before we, we start the show, i got to plug our sponsor, our official sponsor, facefacegames.com. Uh, they're, have, they're running a countdown to Black Friday slash Cyber Monday sale right now, and they'll be announcing another type of sale on Black Friday itself for, that will run throughout the weekend, so make sure to keep your eyes on facefacegames.com. Check out their banners. There'll be a lot of different products that will be on sale. With that said, how's it going, guys? It's going great, KYT. I'm so confused right now, though, because I just asked you before we went live if there's, like, a Canadian holiday this weekend, and there's not, but you guys still do Black Friday. Like, <laughs> what is it, the Black Friday? I, I don't understand. Isn't everyone just going to work on Friday? Like, the thing here in America is that everyone's off, so there's all these Black Friday sales. But We have a lot of people that are off in Canada, too. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not a holiday, but they're just insane. And they're they just take go off? Wow, that's crazy. It's a holiday I mean, to not, them. To, not to say that what we do isn't <laughs> absolutely insane. Like the whole Black Friday thing is is bonkers, but it's crazy that people celebrate it in Canada where there's not even like a day off of work. This is basically the pre-Christmas shopping frenzy. That's what it should be called in Canada. Yeah, it's the same here. It's, it's but at least there's like a plausible reason for it. Like a bunch of people aren't working that day, so it makes sense. But I don't even know the reason, but we. I assume we all these stores saw this as a great idea. People were going nuts in the U.S. and, and we're just stealing uh, this day. We, we're actually just stealing the day to get people crazy and to get them to buy a b- whole bunch of crap, basically. Yeah, I think the Canadian the Canadian door crasher is very different than the American door crasher, though. Yeah, a lot more politeness. I'm sure. Like we just literally. <laughs> oh no, you first. Oh, you first. You first. People <laughs> try and get the hot deals here in America, so it's a different approach in Canada, I'm sure. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm I'm pretty ha- super happy with with the success that the show has had over the last year. Thanks to Doug, thanks to Vince, uh, thanks to you, Brian. Of course, thanks to you, Rob, and of course, our super audio editor Kyle Mathers, uh, the man behind the scenes doing everything. Maybe someday we'll get him on the show. Of course, on the A team, it took me forever to get him to even appear, and I'm not even sure if we ever got him to appear. But uh, maybe someday down the line, we'll get him on the show. And with that, let's start off with a standard, which we talked about last week. You can, we talked at length about um, many different decks and a deck that uh, we had brewed in the First Strike Nation by Rob, which is Grixis Dragons. It was available through our Patreon. Uh, and you can get to that Patreon, patreon.com slash First Strike. And people were asking for updates, sideboard guides. Uh, we had that uh, going for them. And uh, a lot of people were prepping or, or playing that or testing that or trying it out. We had a bunch of people in the nation. Um, I think some of them had okay results, but but none of them cracked the top eight. Ultimately, uh, Shahar Shenhar ended up taking it down. And uh, I, I personally haven't seen him make any noise on, on either the GP or PT circuit since he won two world championships. So it's because I think he focused, I, I heard he focused more on uh, league of legends and, and other games in, in that realm, but it's great to see him take down a GP where teamer 
energy. Are you surprised at all, Rob? Not surprised, right? No, not, not surprised. Like, you put a very good tier one deck with, uh, a, like, a, it's worst matchup is like 50-50 in the hands of a very capable player. And, and you usually expect them to do well with it. So, um, yeah, I can't say I'm too surprised with Shahar's finish. The top eight in general is kind of like what we would have expected more of maybe last week, right? So, like, filled with mountains and forests. <laughs> There's, like, one standout in this weird red-green pummeler deck that uh, is sporting two Samet points of descent and two Samet the Tested, <laughs> which I would not have expected to make the top eight of uh, even an FNM, Loma GP, if someone would have asked me <laughs> basically at any time of the format. But um, uh, there it is. So I'm not sure if it was just a surprise factor or maybe this deck's actually good or it's attacking the metagame in a way that it's difficult for other decks to deal with it. But it's a pretty interesting uh, list with a, a pretty good finish for, from James Stevenson. So I, I kind of want to try that out and see if that deck has any legs or not. But uh, yeah, just filled with Mono Red and Teamer. So it looks like those decks kind of figured out how to uh, push the other random stuff that's popping up in Standard out of the way. and. Uh, and kind of like rise back to the top where I feel those two decks really do deserve to be. I, I mean, I, I honestly do believe that if pilot as well, both of those decks are, are much better than, uh, than what you could be playing otherwise. Have you seen Samet been, being played before in this type of archetype? No, I mean, I've tried to put it in decks before, but it's always just seems worse than every other five drop. And there's a lot of good five drops. Like, this is a red-green deck, and you could be playing Glorybringer in that five-drop slot. <laughs> and that was always the problem I had with Samit. was like, okay, well, if I have forests and mountains in my deck, uh, why am I not casting Glorybringer first before casting Samit? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. But uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just like uh, EOT, Samit, untap, Pummeler, kill you, or something like that. Just like gig get that approach player kind of from out of nowhere. I'm not sure exactly. I, I have to play the deck to kind of figure out how the play patterns work out, but it, it, it's definitely an interesting inclusion nonetheless. Uh, did you try Sam at four, the Planeswalker? Like, what, what did you feel about it in your testing? No, 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 no. I never tried, I never tried to play with that card. I, <laughs> that, that card was uh, auto-added to the do not play list. <laughs> But you're going to play it now. You're going to try it out. I'm going to have to. Yeah, I'm going to have to. I'm sure I have some floating around in my Moto account from like some seals back in the day or whatever. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That, it, it's a weird one. I mean, I, it does give double strike. So it's like a four mana ungauge fury or something. Uh, maybe that's relevant. We'll, we'll have to see. I don't know. It, it, it's a weird list. I, I cannot evaluate it correctly without, <laughs> without playing it, I feel. I don't know, I Brian. I, I don't know if did any of this garbage come up. In your testing or no? I mean, like this deck was around. Uh, he his main innovation is the black in the sideboard. Having access to Cartouche of Ambition is like pretty big game. Like the the bristling Hydra Cartouche plan is is really good against the mono red deck. So now, like I think mono red basically had a buy against this deck before, and he kind of took some very affirmative steps to make sure he's able to compete. I don't know where his mono red match applies now. I would obviously have to play some games with it, but it's certainly like. He at least has a clear plan. Cartouche is my favorite anti-mono red card right now. Um, and he, he kept the swamp in the sideboard, so he actually didn't cost himself any 
efficiency in the main game. He's playing the exact same list he would play if he didn't have any black, um, which is a step I like a lot, actually, in this context. Um, and yeah, it seems like, you know, he's able to play kind of like the slower paced game against the control decks where he's got access to duress and he's playing Sabbath at instant speed. So he had defined and unexpected plans. And that's like a really big key to success when you're trying to bring a kind of like fringe archetype like this to the forefront is making sure you know how you're dealing with the things that force this deck out of the format in the first place. Um, so I think James did a nice job of that. Um, I probably wouldn't play this deck, especially with the list being known. I think, I think you're seeing in this standard, you're getting a lot of value out of surprise factor. Um, kind of these decks popping up from nowhere. Um, we've, we've rehearsed the main players at this point. We know Teamer inside and out. We know Mono Red inside and out. So getting like the surprise gotcha value is worth a lot right now. Um, but I would keep playing Teamer. I don't see any reason to change. It's just like, it's the clear best deck. Keep working on your sideboard. Keep figuring out um, what you want to do, and you'll probably be rewarded week in and week out for sticking with Teamer. If you've, if you've come this far, no reason to leave now. Keep Teamering. Uh, Brian, going to Shahar Shenhar's deck, um, I think Jerry may have been one of the first to adopt uh, two Confiscation Cubes. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he, he goes on and adds a third one in the sideboard, along with uh, what's interesting is like one Torrential Gearhulk. I, th- I think other, other teams before I've, I've put like a more Gearhulk-centric plan in the sideboard. Um, yeah, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong about Coup. So I think I think Double Q started with the Pantheon list at Worlds. That was like the Jensen Turtenwald uh, read list was Double Confiscation Q main. Um, I've heard that some people are even thinking about playing the fourth Confiscation Q at this point. Um, and you know, I played this deck this weekend. That seems totally reasonable to me. It's the key card in in the mirror. Um, and it seems like otherwise Shahar just kind of like picked up some bits and pieces from various sideboard plans he's liked. Torrential Gearhulk, again, that's Pantheon at Worlds. Um, the Lifecrafters Bestiary was, uh, Jerry was the first one I saw playing that in his teamer list. Um, and these Viziers have kind of been trending up. Some people play as many as four Viziers in their sideboards. Um, Slice and Twain is one that I actually haven't seen much of and, and I don't really care for. Um, it's funny because. I've been positing that I think Teamer needs to start hedging more towards the mono-red matchup. I think it's actually favorable for mono-red in their current configuration. Um, you know, the Rampaging Ferocidon, Harsh Mentor, sometimes all eight of those main deck, that's hateful towards Teamer. And the, ma- the matchup becomes difficult for sure. I think Teamer maybe needs to start dedicating some more sideboard space to the mono-red matchup. But Shahar seems to have cut down on his sideboard cards from mono red he doesn't have like the mass quantity of chandra's defeat um he doesn't have a huge number of either sheer harvesters i don't know what his exact plan is but it certainly involves those cards um so i don't know maybe i'm i'm just being short-sighted and my experience in uh, a tournament this weekend is shaping my perception but i got trashed by mono red in the top four of my PPTQ, like it felt like I legitimately had no options in the game because he was playing Harsh Mentor for Asadon. Um But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think there's not a lot of reason to deviate from Teamer at this point. I do think Teamer is clearly better than four color. Um, you're incentivized to just keep the clean mana base, keep the kind of aggressive slant. And my list would look a lot like Shahar's if I had a tournament coming up. 
Okay. Uh, I mean, you just, you just said you got trounced uh, by Mono Red, and if you look at the top 16 for Portland, there's a reasonable amount of uh, Mono Red, a quick count. I think there's five, count five in the top 16. So, Rob, was, was our Grixis Dragons list likely not a very good choice in retrospect, hindsight being 2020, given the amount of Mono Red still uh, in the metagame? Yes, I, I think you could, like, you can fix that uh, that matchup, but I feel like, especially last weekend, the the meta at the GP was super diverse, at least leading up to the top eight, right? It really like narrowed down <laughs> when it got into the last round, but there was like blue-white cycling decks and mono-black aggro and all kinds of other weird stuff that um, just like it's difficult to plan for. I definitely think that if you had no experience with any deck, you're probably better off playing the Grixis deck in a meta where everything's a coin flip. Cause then at least like you and your opponent are on similar footing for like how this matchup is supposed to play out. You might even have more knowledge just cause you're familiar with how the teamer deck plays out. And they literally have no idea what cards are even going to like come out of your hand. Right. So that's definitely a benefit. Um, I think, I think Brian actually brought this point up on the, on the game uh, a, a week or two ago. Is that like, if you're playing teamer in a tournament, you're going to be playing against people that have been playing teamer probably for a long time. I mean, if you're losing, then maybe you're not. You're playing against teamer players that are also new. But if you're winning, those people that are winning are probably very well versed in the teamer mirror. So um, it, it's difficult to kind of to catch up there. You have a lot of knowledge debt that is uh, is difficult to replace, and a lot of people try and skirt that by just kind of playing something rogue, so that uh, you know you kind of have a little bit of advantage on them. You know, you know how the matchup might play out and, and they're kind of left wondering what, what you can even have in your deck. It didn't do terrible at the SCG though. I think Brennan DeCandio finished 17 with the Grixis deck and his list was like almost exactly Sergio's. So there's still some life there, but the deck needs tuning. I, I think it's, if the meta stays stable at just mono red and teamer being the best, I think it's, a more reasonable choice going forward because you can you can definitely make configurations where I feel like you have favorable favorable matchups for those two decks. But when you have to start hedging for approach and tokens and all these other random decks, it's just the strategy is not, doesn't stand up by itself to kind of be able to battle against everything. Hmm, that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned the white blue cycling deck. What do you think about that? I mean. <laughs> I would never play a deck like that in an event just because I get so bored. But it, it's definitely a strategy that not a lot of decks can deal with. So I think it's a fine deck choice. It's just it very much punishes you for making a mistake. So like if you're kind of a, a loose player, I don't think that's the, that's the deck for you. Like you saw the people who are doing well with it are like very good players, right? Like uh, Corey Burkow definitely knows how to play control decks. That's kind of like his bread and butter. Um, and he did reasonably well with the deck. I think he finished like X3 or X3-1 or something like that. Um, but it's, it, I mean, it, it's just, you know, there's just no creatures really in, in the main deck. And, and the stuff that, that does go to grade here gets to come back. So there's a lot of value <laughs> to be had there. It, it, it's kind of scary, like, when they're like on turn 10 and they just play Sarcophagus and they have, you know, 19 cards in the graveyard. They all have cycling and they have seven mana up. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of difficult to, to compete with that kind of card advantage, but I mean, it, it's not too difficult to disrupt their game plan as well. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see if the deck evolves in any meaningful way. 
uh, going forward. Like, I'm not sure that uh, blue-white is the best shell. Maybe blue-black is something to look at as well, or maybe um, maybe just a different configuration, less reliant on Drakehaven, possibly. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's something different, so if that's your style, I recommend picking it up. It's definitely not a bad deck. <laughs> Does it excite you at all, Brian? Does Drakehaven concoction? Not in the least. <laughs> to the extent that, like, I don't... I didn't intend on wasting any time on it. I don't see how it is favored against any of the primary matchups. Um, you know, if it starts winning more, then I'll eat my words and get familiar with it. But as it stands right now, I, I don't see the benefit in investing time into a deck, which just on a surface level, I don't understand how it's competing. Like, it doesn't seem like it should have favorable matchups in in the difficult matchups, like playing Drake Haven on turn three feels like a death sentence to me against half the format. How do you ever win those games? Um, so I, I don't know. It's got to show me something. It put up some decent results, nothing to the extent where I'm like, Oh, I need to start paying attention to this deck. Um, and also like Rob said, put up results in the hands of very good players. Very good players can carry a deck very far. Um, you know, I'm sure Corey will have something to say about the deck probably over on channel this week. I'll, see what he has to say, evaluate from there, but there was nothing here that made me say, oh, I need to take notice of this deck and get familiar with it, because this is going to be a player. Usually I'm pretty good at spotting things like that. The deck just has too many fundamental weaknesses, and like, yeah, maybe it could snipe something out of nowhere, but this can't be a sustainable deck going forward. Like, you can't go all all in on this for the rest of the format and expect to have success. Things have to line up in a very specific way. Um, And I just hate the fact that, like, the removal that would usually be dead in game ones um, from Teamer, which is like, I think Teamer is trending towards a braid. Well, now they have an answer for your, like, your most powerful card in your deck, which is a little awkward, despite the fact they usually like, would have a ton of dead cards against you. You just turned on their braid. So I, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to believe that matchup is favorable, but like I said, I'll eat my words if I have to, but show me first before I invest the time. They get to cast so many rats, though, Brian. Yeah, and there's something to be said. Someone uh, fumigate's good, right? That's what's good. Yeah, someone heard of, a few weeks ago that like the the black white tokens deck, the black white token shell was never actually good. It was just the only deck playing fumigate, which was a very good card. Um, and maybe this is another instance of that where like settle the wreckage and fumigate are good cards. Um, it's another crappy shell around those cards, but those cards are so well positioned that it's kind of making up for it. So that makes me want to explore what other shells are out there. What else can you be doing with this kind of um, you know, fumigate base. I don't know. I don't. I don't see anything that excites me right now. But maybe there's something else out there. Uh, I, I think, given that you have all those cycling cards, you get to settle the wreckage like often. And I feel like in games where I'm playing against white decks that are playing settle, the first settle I'm playing around it, right? Whether they have it or not, I'm playing around it. <laughs> so like I'm attacking with half my creatures when they have four mana up. And we're trying to suss out, like, okay, uh, do I have a fast enough clock? Or, or is this enough to make you want to settle me? Like, do you have it? And we're trying to, like, you know, you're jockeying back and forth to see when they're going to use it. If they just cast it, and then they untap and they leave five mana up again, you're always kind of like, okay, fine. I'll attack with everything but one creature. And if they settle again, you're like, fine, I'll play my hand. And they're like, untap and fumigate. You're just, it, it presents, like, a bunch of very weird scenarios for for mid-range decks that are like mostly focused on, um, you know, non-hasting haymaker creatures, right? So I think it has some lines that are useful, but I agree. Like, if you just have four settle, three fumigate, and then 
you know, any other, uh, you know, 28 cards or whatever, that might be just a better shell than just jamming all of these kind of like one mana cyclers and abandoned sarcophagus in your deck. So yeah, it's definitely something to think about. Yeah, now I want to just like jam every stupid combination of cards I can into, into that kind of like base, like just uh, like black white with all the reanimator guys, like Dread Wanderer and uh, Scrappy Scrounger <laughs> and a bunch of um, vehicles to kind of get value that way. So all your things are wrath proof. Like this sounds really stupid, but if these cards are theoretically good, you can see a world where that kind of approach gets you something, you know? So I, I don't know. I, Fumigating from the format, but I, I was thinking about this actually, like the mono white vamp stack, which I don't think is a good deck, but I think there's probably some mono white deck. But I don't recall them like I recall them playing like Ixalan's Binding and Dust to Dawn, if I remember correctly, as their kind of like removal suite. But I wonder if it's just better for a deck like that to just run four settle. And you just like turn your creature sideways every turn, and like when it looks like because your opponent's forced to race, right? At that point. And you just like they're like, okay, well. I'm all in, I guess. You just like you could just get them. Maybe that's something that's that's useful. I'm not. I'm not sure. That also but, kind of uh, works. Um, you know, going back to the black white, everything's wrathproof. Plan. You play a Danto Vanguard with your Scrap Heap Scrounger and your Dread Wanderer, and now you have like this kind of quasi beatdown plan um, that doesn't seem completely ineffectual, right? Like your starting shell of those um, those twelve creatures, some number of Aether Seer Harvester, some number of Heart of Curin is not the worst thing I've ever heard. I'm not saying it's optimal, but there could be something there. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, maybe you'll see some brews out of us this week. <laughs> Always room for more brews. Especially when you're not worried if they're really good or not. Like, if you're willing to just put some crap on there, it's totally easy. To <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Going back to the Grixis Dragons list, Rob, uh, we got you and Sergio mentioned on not only the game podcast, but also on a good friend, Mike Flores pop level show. Um, all, I think they were bagging on it. Rob. Uh, Brian, Brian had kind words said like, why didn't he think about that? He was stuck in his team or hole, but you know, has some reservations about the list. Like a lot of even people in our nation that sometimes the mana just doesn't really work really well. Um, can you, Tell us um, about your other brews that, that you have that might be able to uh, <laughs> break the stale teamer mono red sort of world that, that we sort of, it looks like we're living in. I mean, I, I tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work out great. So I thought, uh, given the rise of teamer mono red, that some sort of Saltai deck might be good if you could find the right configuration. So I tried to play a Saltai deck that kind of like went over the top of uh, of Teamer and also like the Saltai Mirrors. Saltai is very popular on Moto, so I kind of cut the snakes, cut the ballistas, and was just running like a very lean mid-range package that went like all the way up to Nebraska. Turns out that like if you don't have the that net drop potential with just like Constrictor into Ballista or Constrictor into Cub, that just like take eight, take twelve or whatever, it's not a very great deck. Even though like that doesn't happen very often. The games where it does happen is like an auto win. And so since you're like you know, not doing that in now like thirty uh, percent of games or whatever, you just like end up, you know, losing half of those and that ends up being like kind of very detrimental for your your match win rate. Uh I try to see if 
there was something in Mardu that could be okay, and maybe there is. And my cyborg plan was like not the traditional Brian Gottlieb cyborg plan for Mardu. It was more like uh, kind of how the current lists are looking. And so I was I I try to fix the mana by playing a bunch of caravans instead of harvesters, and just kind of like concede the um, the mono red matchup on uh, in game one, unless like you're just able to not draw them, they don't draw a bunch of shocks or whatever, and uh, kind of just pack the top end with glory bringers. That was also not great. I mean, when you nut out, it was it was still very good. Martyr's still very powerful when you get there, but like you don't want a lot of white in your deck, and it makes it really awkward for trying to play toolcraft exemplar on turn one. So, I don't know, I, I try to look at the list a whole bunch of different ways to figure out, like, well, how can I get, like, more good white cards in my deck instead so I can run more planes? Well, there's, like, not any. <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit awkward. Uh, but my cyborg plane, like, wasn't focused around Fumigate um, and Planeswalkers, so maybe I'll go back to the drawing board on that and see if I can, like, go to, like, a Gideon Chandra Fumigate plan, if that's, like, a better way to approach the team or matchup. Uh, after boarding or something like that, because even that didn't feel didn't give me the warm fuzzies. And then I tried a bunch of different Grixis configurations to try and hedge against all the random decks that are popping up on Moto. Now that like anyone that sees any list do even anything reasonable on camera, it's like instantly pops into the Moto metagame. Um, so it's like just very very diverse. Uh, it's 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 just difficult for a deck like that to be able to. Uh, to figure it out, it's more like a meta call, right? Like, if you think Teamers and Sultai are good, like, that Grixis deck can be pretty good against those two decks, and since Sultai has very much fallen out of favor, um, and that's Grixis' like, best matchup, then uh, the deck needs, like, you know, it really needs some reconfiguration to see, like, how it wants to be, if it has any relevance, I guess, going forward into this mono-red uh, Teamer meta with all these kind of fringe blue-white strategies that are hanging around in the top 16 and the top 32. And then white vehicle still sucks. <laughs> uh, but I have a, a Panharmonicon Sultai list that maybe isn't terrible. So I got to work on tuning that a little bit. I'm going to work on that this week. And I'll probably work on some of this settle the wreckage uh, value, either beat down or super control decks and see if something comes out of there. But uh, it's difficult. You want to like have a good early game, right? And, like, not just die in the mid-game. But, like, you also need to go over top of all the mid-range decks. Uh, but you also, like, you know, you can't just do nothing against control decks, so... It is, uh... Standard is, is in a... It's a good spot. I actually think this standard is very, very interesting, even though, like, there kind of are two very prominent decks in the meta. I don't think it's overly oppressive. You need to be very good to do well with Teamer. You can't just be a random noob. <laughs> So that, that helps. It's not Marvel, right? Like Marvel, you just need to like cast a tune, cast Puzzle Knot, cast Marvel, hope you hit a little bug. It's like very different <laughs> than, than Teamer. Yeah, it, yeah. looking back, I think I should have hated, hated the Marvel decks a lot more than I did just because it, it, in some, a lot of games, it, it really didn't take much to, to win with them. Uh, if you had a tournament tomorrow, Rob, did you bring like a tweaked uh, Grixis list? I would probably play. I just play mono red. Okay. I haven't spent enough time, like playing anything, that's known like a, a tiered deck, in the current standard. So, my tendencies usually lean towards the more aggressive uh, decks if they're available in the meta. And I think the mono red deck is good. So, I probably just play something out of the top eight. Take a look at 
whichever one was able to get the most Ferocidons and Harsh Mentors in their main deck and still have a good win rate. That's good. probably where I want to start anyways. Okay, sounds good. That would be, let's see, if there's a list. Like all, all the lists in the top eight you'd probably consider. Yeah, like Brandon Go's list is, is pretty good, I think. He's got like two Mentor and four Ferocidon in the main. I think it's like really close to what Fournier played at the Pro Tour, actually. Um, and I know that the team really liked that deck going into the PT, and I think actually Fournier had a really good record. Yeah, he had the best uh, record. Coming out of the event. He had the yeah, best so record. He had the best constructed record. Yeah. What was it? No, he was at the top of some list. But yeah, he went, he went 9-1 and constructed. He had the best he record. He went 9-1 or something, yeah. Uh, it, you know, he, he crushed constructed for sure, but he also went like 1-5 or 0-6 in draft or something like that, so it's unfortunate. But, uh, but yeah, that means the standard deck is at least had had something to it, right? And I, I think Brandon's list looks very much similar to uh, to Fournier's list, so I'd probably start there and yeah. probably poke Dan about uh, what changes he thinks should be made, since he's the person I know with the most experience with that uh, with that list uh, recently, anyways. And and Brian mentioned he would he would just jam Teamer. Uh, speak of Dan, uh, the the whole. Uh, First strike team, uh, pro tour team, didn't do so hot at the PT with none of them <laughs> qualifying themselves for another pro tour. So I don't know if it's just one hurrah for the team. But Anderson, Anderson's qualified. Yeah, yeah. But I was just going to say this this past weekend, my friend qualified Robert Anderson, part of the team, requalified himself uh, in in winning in top fouring. The, the RPTQ in Montreal with Grix's Death Shadow. So congratulations to him. And uh, I heard Dean McLaren was really close. Uh, I think it was this online PTQ, PTQ that he came close in or, or some other tournament. And then Vidi, who was part of the team, finished ninth at GP Portland. So Rob had two close, like was going to run it back with two teammates, but fortunately it's going to be him. And then uh, people started in my close group of friends started photoshopping his face on top of like every other first strike member and <laughs> saying, this is the new team or like how funny it would be is like, they list all the teams and it's just him <laughs> in the pictures. Like BDM takes interviews. It's just him and everyone else has a team of six, but congratulations to Rob again. Uh, I think this is his, uh, you mentioned it's his eighth or ninth PT. So this guy has been, been, grinding it for years and uh, consistently making it hasn't hit like a top PT finish. But uh, of course we all know that card skills and uh, luck and variance on your side on that given day. So sick job by him at piloting Grix's death shadow. What, were you going to add anything uh, to that Rob? Yeah, I wish he would have given me the list for my RPTQ. <laughs> <laughs> so I could have stepped in and replaced Doug for the, the team event going forward. <laughs> Now I have to drive down to New Jersey in December and uh, top eight what will be like one of the most miserable sealed tournaments of my life, probably. What did you have? Like, you, you play Grix and Stuff Shadow, right? You mentioned? I've, in modern, I've played like almost everything. <laughs> Every tournament I switch. <laughs> well, you played Stuff Shadow. No, no, I ended up playing Tron. Eldrazi Tron. Okay. Eldrazi Tron, okay. And it was a bad choice. <laughs> that deck sucks. <laughs> always a bad choice. It's just always a bad choice. I screwed up. I screwed up, guys. <laughs> what? What? I thought it was so funny if I top forward with it. That that was a driving factor. And uh, I was punished for having that 
They knew. They That's a good way to knew. choose your deck, though, just for troll value. <laughs> like, how funny is it if I actually win with this deck? That's how I choose most of my decks for tournaments. <laughs> like, we we made fun of the deck for like a whole year, so I figured <laughs> it would be great <laughs> if it could be for the PT. <laughs> but like. The deck, I mean, it, it actually top four, uh, the Montreal RPGQ, one copy. The deck has consistently put out results. Dan Muster, we had him on. He, he loves the deck, and, and he's still been... Yeah, it, if you play lots of Eldrazi temples and lots of Eldrazi in the early turns of the game, the deck is sweet. Like, in round one, I was like, I thought that I was going to 6-0 the event, because, like, I played against Merfolk, and my, my draws were just, like, uh, like natural Tron, like casting like a uh, reality smasher and, and like dismembering something like just, just going off and then like hitting the second tower off the top and just like casting Ulamog on turn four. And I was like, Oh yeah, this deck is insane. <laughs> and then the rest of the five rounds did not turn out like that. They're all very miserable and multiply the lot. And uh, I, I even lost to Jund and I flooded out like, I must have had like 15 lands. I couldn't play all the lands in my hand. The only reason I could keep activating Seagate Wreckage is because my opponent was cold against commanding me and making me discard the second land I drew. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I could keep I could keep digging. So he's giving me outs, but my deck was not. <laughs> did not want to give me wins. <laughs> so it was a tease. It was being a tease. But yeah, I, I don't know. The deck is uh, wildly inconsistent, and I will not be playing that deck ever again in the future. <laughs> but it's so powerful. Uh, okay. Yep, yep. Yeah, I agree. But so is casting scape, scape shift. <laughs> I, I was just drilling around with uh, Merfolk uh, at the LCQ and, and got crushed. And, and actually lost to Eldrazi Tron, uh, who had a really early, it's turn two or three thought knots here and was able to shred like an important piece in, in my hand. And a 4 4. Uh, well, some of my draws can actually be hard to, to get rid of. Um, and I really felt like, I don't know how the matchup usually plays out, Rob, but I, I really felt like without spreading seeds, they could just like have thought on Sears and Smashers to really hold my team off and, and dismember some of my cre- key creatures. And then he can drag it, like before I draw spreading seeds, drag it long enough to, to cast like something really big to completely own me. But if I had seeds, though, I absolutely crush him. You didn't have C's in your whole deck list? Uh, I do have C's. I, I just didn't draw it, I mean. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that changes the matchup significantly. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think both of those decks are bad. So. <laughs> the, a lot of people are telling me that. I'm like, yeah, whatever, guys. I'm just, I'm just here to play. Uh, <laughs> I should note, for, for, all, for all everyone that's going to, like, tweet at me or message me on Facebook saying, like, that, that their version of, of Eldrazi Tron or Merfolk is super great, you know, even bad decks can win. Uh, so you can save me the, uh, the letters. I, I know. <laughs> I'm well aware that bad decks can win. Um, looking, someone wanted us to comment on the, the modern, uh, the RPTQ that happened online, uh, where, uh, Brian, let me know that like, the top eight makes it. And no one went 8-0, a bunch of 7-1s, a bunch of 6-2s, a lot of 6-2s, which means only two out of, like, it seems like a dozen X-2s qualified themselves for Bilbao in Spain. So uh, good for Dimitrakis and Alice1986, who uh, qualified with Boggles and Burn at the X2. 
I'm looking at the Boggles list, and uh, it intrigues me because I, I used to be known as uh, the Boggles player, and a lot of people still make fun of me for that, or or just like the jokes are nonstop. Once, one, uh, like I think there is a downside to to playing a rogue deck, pet deck, because then everyone just assumes or makes like awful jokes every weekend. There's like a modern tournament. Oh, you're gonna play Boggles, right? So. I do that to every person I know who's ever played Boggles. I don't know why. I, 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 it just bugs me now because I've moved on from... It's been years. I mean, we're talking about old school PTQs here. I still, about- call my, I still call my friend Bobby Victory Bobby Boggles every time I see him. He played it like... I don't even think he played it. He played, he played Tron at the PT. He, liked, he was playing it in our testing group. And that nickname has stuck for him for years now. So I feel the pain. I feel you, Bobby Boggles. I feel you. Uh, I mean, I, I to be fair, I also wrote like two articles on the deck, so I deserve what I get. And just intriguing to see like the the misers uh, in his list: uh, Dimitrakis with uh, a Cartus of Solitary, a Hyena Umbra, uh, a Griff's uh, Boon, a Spirit Mantle, one Triclopian Sight. Which man, like I haven't seen this being played in a Boggles deck ever. Uh, it's a one white, one colorless enchantment with flash comes into play. You untap enchanted creature, enchanted creature goes plus one, plus one, and has vigilance. So I guess it's a, a sweet way if you're against any any other deck with creatures to surprise them with a crazy block with a giant boggle. I remember like when Jun was the number one deck in the format, I, I experimented. It was a list that uh, influenced me that played... Like I think it was four, or at least two copies of Fist of the Ironwood, uh, one green, one colorless that that put uh, two one ones in play and gave Trample because Liliana was basically one of the main cards uh, that you were scared of in the format, and with that and, and Dried Arbor allowed you to sort of counter that, uh, counter their minus two once, and then be able to kill it on your turn. And here, like Cartouche does the same thing for cheaper. Um, I do wonder. I've seen people jam four ley lines of sanctity before uh, this guy or girl jammed three of them. And man, this one always bothered me because like you have to do it in some unplayable matchups, unwinnable matchups. And of course, sometimes like I brought it in when I had them, that package against Liliana or, or Thoughtseize and stuff like that. Uh, but it always feels bad if you're against something else. Like, I don't know. Blue white control affinity and and stuff like that. Nine percent of decks in the format. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think about that? When when it was like mostly Jund and black green based decks, which it was a couple of years ago, uh, I, I saw some value in bringing it in, and there was a lot of burn in the local Montreal meta game. So that card covered a lot of matchups, and when Storm was a bigger thing. But now, what do you think, Brian? You're already taking a crapshoot if you're playing this deck. Like, why not just completely <laughs> spin the wheel all over the place? I would play one of each ley line that's currently legal and modern. You never know. You might get it in your opening hand. Um, we could probably get, like, all these weird three ofs, put one of them each in the main deck. I say, why not? Just go all in on the I don't want any control over my outcome plan and just let whatever happens, happens. <laughs> Brian, you, you can play a deck where you have nothing but ley lines in your sixty. I feel uh, there is the there is a legacy ley line stack, right? That's just like all ley lines. 
And it has Sarah Sanctum or something in it. I suppose. Yeah, I, be- I believe so. I, I think that's where its mana comes from. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember how it. That's gotta be the greatest deck ever. So. Yeah. No. Clearly. How do you win? <laughs> how do you win with probably just cast Opalescence or something like that? Yeah, I'm gonna look and see if I can find the win condition for it. It's been a while since. Come I've on, seen you it. just put five ley lines in the plan turn one. Sarah Sanctum. <laughs> tap. Add five mana. Opalescence. Go. Take twenty four. <laughs> GG. <laughs> That sounds really bad. <laughs> I mean... They win with Helm of Obedience. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> they have Why Helm Lessons, too. Um, oh, sure. For the, yeah. for the clean kill. <laughs> it, it could be that they win more with Opalescence, but uh, it, yeah, it's got both. Those are the two kills. Helm of Obedience with the uh, Leyline of the Void combo. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. I mean, you have protection from Bolt and Fatal Push for the most part. Oh, not Fatal Push, I guess. It still gets you. But Abrupt Decay? Abrupt Decay and Bolt? You're like... Now you dodge a lot of format. You're good. Yeah, this deck's unbeatable. Everyone should play this. This should be the only deck in Legacy, actually. I don't know why anyone plays anything else. <laughs> <laughs> that deck's obviously going to top eight at an event like every, every Legacy trip this year, and someone's just going to rail us. I don't know how great it is. <laughs> yeah, this is how Eldrazi Tron started, too. And then yeah. <laughs> just took over the format. So, here you go. Next thing. Ley lines all over the place. <laughs> I remember going back to Boggle to finish up on Boggles. I remember not only did it play ley lines, some some versions would play like four suppression fields in the main. Oh, that was very annoying playing against that deck. I had suppression field, especially when you're sleepy and you say things like "okay," and then you realize you have affection play. You're like, "Never mind, good game." That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Yeah, my buddy, my buddy Seamus played the suppression field version of, of Boggles at uh, Pro Tour Valencia and had like something like the sixth best record for the entire Pro Tour. It just like crushed people all day. He went eight, one and one or something like that. Preposterous. Uh, he might have been like the, I mean, I'm sure that floated around, but I think he was like the first big result with the suppression field version of Boggles. Um, he is someone who I also, every time I see him, ask him about Boggles. <laughs> Too, so <laughs> it just works that way. I can't tell you why. Ne- never play. I mean, it's gonna haunt you guys. This is my advice: never play a perceived or actual skillless deck. They will never let it go. Um, suppression field. I mean, man, it's just like you're playing all these car- preemptive hate cards. Like suppression field was really good, also because at the time, I-, I don't know if it's as great now, but at the time, like Splinter Twin was still a thing, so that you were preemptively hating. Uh, against a deck that actually killed you faster, usually, because they could buy enough turns, whether it be like Echoing Truthing, a key creature that you have, or Chump Blocking, or in some way, they were able to usually twin twin me before I, I killed them, uh, like one just one turn. Or they, they, they'd have a bunch of spells kite sometimes in the main, too, so that was, that was also annoying. But uh, going over the results, we're seeing like a copy of every single d- different deck in the format, in the top 16, Rob is surprised that, uh, it's like, is anybody playing Grixis Death Shadow anymore? Is that what, is that what you're I mean, taking away from this? They might be playing it, but they're not doing well enough, I guess. Uh, it looks, I mean, it looks like to me that Dredge just kind of crushed this event. Uh, <clears throat> which is interesting, because it's a deck that's very easy to beat if you want to beat it. Um, but if you just look through the other decks that are in the top six, like up through the top 16, there's not a lot of graveyard hate, really. Um, 
in the list. Like some some decks have it, but uh, it's pe people have definitely trimmed down on it. And um, usually, you know, it's like affinity, right? Like people start shaving their ancient grudges, and it's time to start suiting up ornithopters with cranial platings. Um, so modern's like a very interesting, or I don't know, I'd call it interesting, I guess, but a very weird format that way, and that. Uh, Old favorites just become great again because people have decided that there's not enough uh, room in their sideboards to hate against it, which I guess is why like pros like PV have been like shouting at Watsy for years to uh, increase the size of modern sideboards to 20 cards or whatever, just because like it's unmanageable to be able to uh, have a reasonable game plan against the plethora of different decks and archetypes and strategies that can be coming at you in a modern event. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting. Is I think metagaming in modern is is very important, but it's also very difficult to uh, to get it right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you nail it, it's <laughs> what a skill. Especially if you're going to let's say a GP that's not in your city, right? Like, I think I think I would be able to give a good gauge of of the metagame at my local Montreal tournament, maybe, but anywhere else, I'm just I don't know. I'm just throwing a dart. I think. Like even at the RPTQ, I had a very difficult time. And like, like other players from Hamilton were like, oh, well, like the people from face-to-face -face shop in Toronto are always playing like, you know, the metagame is always like this. And I'm like, cool, they're not the players that are cute for the RPTQ. Right. So, <laughs> I don't really care what they're playing, to be fair. Oh, like maybe one guy is cute. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky, I guess. And, and you do have people traveling from the U.S., like to play the Toronto RPTQ because it's the oh, most convenient yeah. one for them or yeah, the closest absolutely. one to them. Yeah. So you have, you have no idea. Like these local players, like I, at the LCQ that I played in, I, I don't think there were much five color humans at all. And I think there certainly were copies of it at the RPTQ. So it's, it's hard to know who decided to pick up on the latest uh, deck that did well at the SCG. And we could see like a bunch of five color humans, right? And in, in, in this uh, RPTQ, there's five copies in. That went X three or better, so none of them qualified. But it's I guess putting up reasonable results, and, and people are still playing the deck. Um, Spell Channel telling us it's it's a little underwhelming, which could be true, right? So just a lot of people testing uh, this new deck. I mean, Aethervile decks are like very much based on drawing and playing Aethervile turn one. So like if you do that a lot, then usually your tournament's <laughs> going to go pretty good. If you don't, it's not it's not great. Which I guess you could consider Eldrazi Tron. Uh, I was, I was about to say that. These files are called Eldrazi Temple, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Brian, what, which deck should Rob play next if he has an upcoming modern tournament? Is it is it just a Death Shadow deck? Do you want to feel like you have some control over your destiny? Because if that's the case, I think you should probably be playing Death Shadow still. Um, it's, it's the most, it feels most like real magic for the format. Um, as far as like what you're most likely to win with, I don't really know at this point. Like, I think that's a really difficult determination to make. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have good modern advice. This is the thing I default to all the time. It's so hard to give good modern advice. If you have a deck you love that like just makes you happy to play it. Probably play that because that's like where you're going to get your biggest edge, and you know your sideboard plans, and you've you've done the research. I don't think anything's really like more powerful than anything else. I think the format has caught up to Death Shadow. If I had a modern tournament, that's what I would play because I have a lot of experience with it, and I think it 
leverages my skill edge to the greatest degree. But I don't think it's like headed over heels the best deck. It just kind of suits my play style and has reasonable matchups versus everything. I play mono red, not like mono red, mono red, but like you know. Yeah, that's fine too. I, I think that's a fine choice. Deck is you give a little bit more to your opponents then. Like if they want to beat you, they probably can. But um, in most cases, they don't make the effort. So <laughs> agreed. It's more of a pilot choice for me. I know that <laughs> if I get hands that can play magic, I'm more likely to not mess them up <laughs> than any other random modern deck. Model red in all formats for for Rob. <laughs> it is the archetype I'm best at playing. So when it when it's good, I I do enjoy that. Are we gonna just put like spicy like white ley lines in the sideboard for the mirror? No, I'll just, I'll just play Ferocidon. <laughs> <laughs> this is my spirit animal now. Play the red ley line. I don't even know. Just just play every ley line. They were the best it, cards. The, in the red ley line is like a really bad rampaging for us to die. Yes, it is. It definitely is. You can't, <laughs> can't gain life. I think that might be all it does. I think so. Um, but like damage can't be prevented. It probably says that. Too. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Which is super relevant. <laughs> is there? I guess outside of a banning, uh, you guys don't see like. A control, a, a more classic control deck. We're not talking about lantern control, but you know, a blue-based control deck popping up. Ever? I saw a real spicy blue-black uh, control deck at the RBTQ in Toronto. Um, it was like uh, Thopter Foundry um, and Sword of the Meek, and he's playing like four War of Invention. And then like some Tesseret, and then just a bunch of control elements, so some counter spells, some damnations, some Thoughtseize Inquisition, stuff like this. And uh, he was like in the running uh, going into the last round. I'm not sure if he made top eight and then lost. Yeah, he probably made top eight. I'm pretty sure his record was okay for top eight. I guess I don't think he he uh, ended up qualifying for the PT, but it, it was very close. But uh, yeah, the list was uh, very interesting. War of Invention was. Very, very powerful in that deck. And he had, like, uh, welding jars as well. So he's, like, using the welding jars to help uh, cheapen the whirs. And then, you know, you just, like, bring a Thopter Foundry into play with a welding jar already there. Uh, makes it very hard to get that stupid thing off the table. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it seemed like a reasonable control deck. I'm sure, like, his list was not completely optimal. So it's possible that that deck could... Uh, could see some improvements and be uh, be something that kind of sticks around a little bit. Um, but yeah, for actual control decks, I don't know. Unban Jay Swatsy, but I, we're going to have to wait for after the PT for that, I think. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they'll, they'll have the PT, which is like in February or March or something like that. And then uh, like right after that, they'll announce Modern Masters 2018, and Jace will just be the face of the set. That's that. I would assume that's what their plan is. That's my, my hot prediction for 2018. <laughs> let's, let's go straight to, to what you said that the PV and Zv were, were talking about, Rob. Uh, do you foresee a world, or do you, would you prefer 20-card sideboards in the world of Magic? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you, you actually, like, to make Magic grow uh, and, and gain popularity, you actually want people to be able to play these fringe strategies and win. So it's like it's it's worse for you as a person that wants to lower variance and uh, have a consistent win rate, but it's better for 
you know, the average player to be able to be more likely to also win the matchup lottery and be able to beat you because you didn't have enough sideboard slots to be able to, uh, to deal with their strategy. So I don't think that would be a good change, even though I would personally find it beneficial. Brian, would you, would you prefer 20 card sideboards? I think I have this, basically the same opinion Rob does. Like, yes, I would. I think it would be interesting, but it's not the correct move. People love modern. Modern is the most popular magic format right now. It's the most beloved magic format. Even like, even the game podcast, which I expect to be like the most competitive players are who are generally interested in the game podcast. Our modern episodes are by far our most popular episodes. People want to talk about modern. They want to hear about modern. They love modern. And part of the reason they love it is because these fringe strategies and these hyperlinear archetypes work. They want to be able to play you know, their dredge decks, their affinity decks, and if you make them too easy to hate out, you'll change a lot of what people love about modern. Now, a lot of what people love about modern is what I dislike about it. Um, but not every format is for me. And if you're just asking me, like, what's best for the long-term health of modern, no, the sideboard should stay the same. I, I don't think modern needs any changes. It continues to assert itself as the most popular format of Magic right now. Right. I'm seeing. I'm scanning through the articles and, and seeing a lot of people um, talk about uh, on SCG, Brian, like chart a course. They're even naming articles after it, <laughs> which is your was your spicy card for Teamer. Yeah, that- chart a course. I mean, chart a course is a great card. It it just needs a home, and we haven't found it yet. Um, I don't doubt that it will see legacy modern standard play. Like it's just the correct rate to do so. Um, it's played in a white uh, Godfrey's gift. Yep, yeah, for it's, sure. It's great there, actually. Yeah, I mean, it should see wider than wider played than that. It's a great card. It's just the format's kind of weird right now. I still am not convinced that like there's not a version of Teamer that isn't benefited by having chart, of course, in it. Um, I, it's just hard to say exactly what that looks like, and the presence of mono red makes that very difficult. As the format evolves, it could still come to a point where. Um, it's the right approach and it, it just won't surprise me when it pr- proliferates through every format. It's an incredibly powerful card on rate. Alrighty. So to we're going to wrap up the show to wrap up this our, uh, one year. Wait, 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 wait. Weeks ago. Well, I have one more comment on modern. So any format where <laughs> blue-green merfolk is able to like do well in a tournament is a good format. That's it. That's all I have to say. Anyways, we haven't seen it do amazingly well. It, it, it top-ended a bunch of random stuff. Like, as yeah. soon as uh, they started putting, like, Branch Walker and Kometra's speaker. I don't yeah, know what it is. Yeah. I played that. So, some green, yeah, but the 2-2. It, it, like, it, like, top-ended the first two or three, like, modern SCG events. So, any format where that's possible, is, it's got to be great. It has to be. I'll just do it. I think it's... I mean... If there's only one person playing it, then there there's more. Yeah, I gotta give more credit to that, right? Like, there's barely there's nobody playing Merfolk, basically. I think. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. But any <laughs> any format where blue green Merfolk is a viable archetype to bring to an event, you can sometimes do well in. Is just it has to be a good format. That goes for standard too. So if Rivals comes out and blue green Merfolk's a real deck in standard then definitely standard's going to be great because there's just no way that the format can be bad where a deck like that is, is a contender. 
Because it's like basically a draft deck. You just look very good draft deck. So, and draft is great. Draft is the best format. So I'm sure that the format is very fun. Anyways, <laughs> go ahead. It's not a draft deck. What, what, it's got Aether Vile in turn one, though. <laughs> but if, it does, sort of does, does feel that way without it, as a lot of these uh, Aether Vile decks do. So we'll finish uh, the show with... Uh, let's all give one lesson of the many lessons that, that we have learned over the last year since we started this show. It doesn't have to be um, show-specific or, or even magic-specific. But uh, we'll start with you, Brian. What did you, what did you learn about um, our amount of raccoons up north? Well, as I said before the show, what I learned is that Canada kind of dramatically overrepresents how many raccoons are actually in Toronto. They were nowhere near the numbers that I thought were acceptable. Um, but that's just kind of a quick hit lesson. A more important lesson that I've maybe learned over the last year of doing First Strike. Um, I think I've learned to be more positive. And I know that sounds kind of weird because I can still be cranky about things. But I think that it's like a very old and very simple lesson. Catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Um, I think people kind of warmed up to my opinions a little bit when I um, did more to kind of couch them in, you know, a, a little bit softer language and to not take such hardline stances and to just explain why, you know, even though I feel this way, I get why it may not be the right thing for everyone else. My old approach was kind of like, I feel this way. And if you don't, you're an idiot. Um, I see why that is not a great approach to take when you're trying to speak to an audience. And I think we've really connected with like the first strike nation, all of our listeners. Um, I feel like I kind of grew closer to a lot of people when I was just more willing to present things um, in a more balanced manner. You know, I, I think that starting the podcast, I kind of wanted to be uh, the hated guy on the podcast. You know, we were always set up to be a debate show and every debate show has the guy who is the hated guy. And I realize I don't bear that role all that well. Um, I just like talking about magic, having fun coming on, talking with you guys every week. And, uh, you know, it took a year full of first striking to figure that out. But that's where I'm at now. And that's my lesson for the year. All right, good. What about, what about you, Rob? Brian, Brian found himself on First Strike Podcast. <laughs> um, I guess uh, I'll, I'll take a magic example. Um, so a lot of my larger constructed events previously, I'd always try and play like a tier two deck or even a tier three deck and bend it to a way that I feel attacks the metagame in a positive way. And like sometimes that <laughs> yielded very good results. And sometimes my tournament was a, a total mess. Um, and I, over the last year, what I did instead was I would just like play what I actually thought the best deck uh, in the format was. Not the best deck to it, not the deck that attacks the best deck, but instead just like play the best deck. So uh, that change resulted in me like, you know, top eighting two GPs and qualifying for an RPTQ uh, and doing like not totally miserable. Uh, at the PT, so um, I, I think it's 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 good. It's fine to brew. Uh, I think in the beginning, but at some point, if uh, things are not looking good, then you just kind of need to cut your losses and try and figure out like of the tier one decks, 
which of them can you pilot the best and which of them, you know, kind of like works for you uh, the best. And then just really like tighten your game plan for the matchups that you, you think you're going to face. And just doing that is, uh, is worth a lot of percentage points because those tier one decks are usually tier one for a reason. Um, now, I say that on the heels of Sergio doing very well with a Grixis deck that I brewed up, but I myself uh, didn't tell him to play the deck. I just said, <laughs> I'm working on this, and I feel like it has a positive favorite matchup. Uh, and then he ended up proving that the deck uh, is pretty reasonable, and I, I think uh, on the SCG circuit also did very well with the deck um, last week, uh, too, at the... Uh, or this weekend, rather, at the SCG Classic or Open or whatever it is that they they were running. So the, the deck has some some legs, um, but there's a lot of brews that I have taken to tournaments that are much much worse than that deck. <laughs> so I have kind of pulled all that nonsense out. Also, I learned that if Brian shifts me a deck list, I'll just play it 100 percent of the time without question, uh, assuming it's in a PowerPoint presentation. Well, which which it hasn't been. Yeah, you have to wait for the PowerPoint. Yeah. Everything before the PowerPoint presentation is garbage. Like, just ignore it. But once it's solidified it's like, in a PowerPoint presentation, you can be pretty sure it's a good deck. Then you know. It's like, Brian's decided to put this in PowerPoint. It's it's busted. Um, I, ship, I ship you... Uh, let's finish your thing with, with this tweet that... Uh, shout out to Kyle Norman, who posted it in the First Strike Nation to let us know that uh, Brennan... DeCandio, M. DeCandio, uh, posted an updated list, said he went 4-1 in three leagues in a row, so 12-3, um, with a list that's basically still mostly the same with some, some key changes. Well, what do you think about these changes, Rob? Yeah, so I actually tried this mana base. Oh, no, no, he ha- sorry. I didn't see his basics. He, he has the same mana bases uh, as what we had before. So he's like, cut a fatal push... And cut a gift of Aetherborn. Cut a gift of Aetherborn, yeah. And he's added a Chandra. And a Vizier. And a Vizier, yeah. I don't know if I love the third Chandra, but uh, that's definitely interesting. I mean, it's a pretty small change, but um, I can definitely, definitely see shaving on the pushes. Like, you're already miserable against Mono Red, anyways, so. Uh, <laughs> might as well just concede the match altogether until after board. Uh, he's like kind of kept the Dream Stealers and added some Gear Hulks in the board. I uh, I wanted to try out Gear Hulks, uh, but I never got around to uh, to purchasing them and actually uh, seeing if they're not garbage. But uh, that seems like an interesting change. Um, yeah, I still I still want someone that very much knows mana to go through this deck and see if they can. Uh, help with making it just slightly more consistent. Um, I think it's really one of the ma- major faults of the deck, which has been pointed out by a lot of people. And I was like, it is what it is. I, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> you brew so many decks, but yeah, you need like you need a, a co-pilot that that knows how to <laughs> do the mana I mean, for you. The, the numbers of the the quantity, like how many red sources, how many blue sources, how many black sources, given like how many double colored cards and like when you want to cost your cards is taken into account in the mana. So like the, the, the number of pips that you can produce with your lands given the turn is like there, but uh, just like being able to reliably, you're basically forced to play Aether hub 
You don't want to essentially. You, that, that you, can't, like a you can't fix it. You can't fix this mana base. That's the thing about it. Is that like <laughs> the only the only thing you can do is decrease your color requirements. Like find which double colored spells aren't essential. Um, so like moving away from gift the day they're born is probably like a good move. Um, and then like the next card on the chopping block at that point is something like Vraska's Contempt, and I certainly wouldn't add the Vizier, because then you're ask- adding a double blue to the mix, and, like, if you were able to move away from those cards, you successfully get to a cleaner set of mana requirements, which is how you answer this problem. But, that opens up a new set of problems, right? Because now you don't have these kind of answers that you're relying on for Mono Red. Like, you need these cards against Mono Red. There's not really any way to fix that. Um, so, and you're certainly not giving up the double red spells. Like, they're basically... Yeah, that's the deck. In the deck. So <laughs> there's not a super clean way to fix it. And I think, like, this is the cost you're paying. You get to play all the most powerful spells, and now you have to have crappy mana because of it. And I, I, I mean, maybe, like, you get a tweak that makes it slightly better, but when you're talking about fixing it, you can't fix it. And that's the issue that you're really dealing with. The only thing you could explore is, like, an evolving wilds mana base, and I'm fairly convinced that that turns out to be much worse than what you currently have. Yeah, oh, probably. No. I mean, the, the hub is pretty useful. I've never tried uh, Wilds, though. That's something to think about. Yeah. I imagine that it is... You just have so many tap lands then. Yeah, I think, um, I think it does turn out worse, but that's the only thing I really see that you could explore. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I tried putting treasure, two treasure maps in the main as a way to kind of, like, pseudo-fix mana plus, like, create some value, and that was not a great plan. And I also tried to play... Cultivator's Caravan in the three drop slot instead of Doomfall. That was also not a great plan. <laughs> so yeah, we maybe just stuck with uh, you get to play all these sweet cards, but sometimes your fourth and fifth land come into play tapped, and definitely your first land usually comes into play tapped almost always. Right. I'll, I'll end with my thing. It's it's actually with what I've learned over the last year. Like just one thing, and it's something we we've mentioned uh, on the show. I think Brian brought it up. It's I enjoy. <clears throat> I've learned like the element of surprise is pretty uh, big, and I've learned this not not through playing Magic, through playing like different types of card games, and then relaying and and thinking it over about all the different types uh, games of Magic that I've played in the past, where uh, when. Uh, like Brian mentioned, when when certain teamer builds or certain specific builds in the past where it'd be like, I'm thinking like mono blue devotion, mono black devotion, a lot of standard decks that I've played against at high level tournaments where you know, basically even like their 75 configuration, then a lot of the edge is lost um, from from the opponent. They they can't really surprise you or anything. You can't make a misplay that... Well, not really a misplay. You can't make a play that they can totally take advantage because you assumed that they would only have a certain set of cards. So... And then playing what I think people considered underpowered, like something like blue-white in modern and, and top-aiding a, a PPTQ with it, losing in top four... But just playing that deck and playing against winning two blue-white mirrors where maybe it was my control experience, maybe it was like just knowing um, in a control against control matchup what cards are important in the middle and late stages of the game um, are, are good, it gave me that edge. So what I'm taking away from, from sort of, I guess, two different lessons is, is 
what I want in my deck choices in the future, uh, which is something that um, if a deck is established, coming out with maybe, like, not making it worse, but sometimes it's hard to come up with a concrete example right now, but I know some decks in the past where it was obvious what narrow counter spells they were playing because everyone was just net decking the same deck in the sideboard, so you know, knew exactly the type of uh, counter spell that they had, and you could just play around it by either uh, packing your deck with a different type of threat that goes under uh, that counter spell, or just avoids it altogether. Uh, so a lot of these thoughts have really changed the way that I want to be, let's say, tweaking my deck or changing my deck in the future or approaching a certain tournament where I think, like, if I have an edge in knowing how the values of cards change over the course of the game, I'd rather be playing a deck like that and just jamming mirrors or, or whatever. So I don't know if that, does that, any of that make sense, guys, as I mumble through this. <laughs> Rob's like, no. We, we, we feel you, KYC. <laughs> the eye roll, the eye roll. <laughs> the, the important thing, KYC, is it's a lesson for you. It's not a lesson for us. As long as you're taking the lesson away, that's all I care about. As long as it's uh, your heart. If me and Brian were just having a, a debate about which of our arguments or, or responses were, were better, given your question, KYT. I will concede wholeheartedly to Brian's response. It was <laughs> amazing. <laughs> uh, I need to befriend other people like Bobby Boggles. <laughs> Where are you at, bro? <laughs> um, I think that does it for our show. Shoutouts to everyone that is in the chat. I see Aaron, Sergio. Very you know, I, I have to give shout outs to people. I had some some local guys. I didn't catch their name. I'm sorry. I, I didn't get your name when we were talking, but he said uh, how much he likes First Strike Podcast and uh, asked me to come on more. So I want him to know I made sure to clear out my schedule to be on the show today just for him. Um, so I, I hope he appreciates it. We, in so, fact, moved the show from yesterday to tonight just so Brian could make it and do this shout out. That's, that's completely false. But if you, if you want to take that to heart, you have my permission to. Um, that, that sounds fine. I think, uh, shout out to Jackie, my, my, my evil twin. I think that has, had to have been MS Nelson. Um, he's been such a, well, if it wasn't him, he's, he's been such a praise on. on what, at my, at my local tournament? Oh, oh local tournaments. Yeah, no, I was, I was okay. playing live. I was playing oh, Okay, live. wow. Um, and, and someone mentioned to me how much they, they enjoyed First Strike. They also wanted to know what my connection was to you. He's like, did you used to live in Canada? Or something along those lines. And I'm like, no, KYT just, just barns me really hard and asks me to do all this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Joel Parody, the true reason that we're connected. That's the true. Whole, the true reason. Um, amazing guy. Uh, Rob, did I ever tell the story on the show how I met Joel? I, okay, tell me if you, I've already told the story. I don't even know the story, so definitely Joel's not. Reason, sure. Joel's the reason why I even know Brian because uh, he's one of Brian's close friends. But in Magic, or or maybe in real life, even yeah, just Joel doesn't play Magic anymore. I just saw him on Sunday. We watched Survivor Series together. I went up to his house. So we were both playing the Call Go or Call Blade Mirror at the time, and we're just both super friendly and talkative. Like if you met uh, Joel, he's just some guy that you just—he's one of those guys that you just instantly fall in love with. 
five, ten seconds just talking with the guy because he just oozes so much like joy and happiness. And uh, he was just so caught up with our, our good conversation that he actually passed the turn without playing a land. So and I end up in, in the call play mirror, which is essential, who plays Jace first and stuff like that. I just owned them, but we were able to build such a strong friendship from that, but it was a good laugh. It's just like how he reacted after passing the turn, and like I, I was playing, I think I was playing my turn, and then he's like, oh my god, I just forgot to play a land. <laughs> so, that was Trolls. Um, but I thought it was, uh, shout out to MS Nelson, though. He, he always shouts out um, the cast on, even in, in the game Discord, so shout out to that guy, then everyone who has joined uh, from that community as well. So, any shout-outs from you, Rob? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll shout-out to, uh, to Derek, who I recently re-followed <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, uh, he had hit 420 follows, uh, followers and then uh, tweeted something stupid, so then I decided to unfollow him so that uh, he'd be back at 419. But uh, he made a funny comment today, and I figured I'd give it back to him. So shout out to Derek. You got your follow back, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All righty. I am going to uh, shout out to our First Strike producers. Jonathan Good, Cal Smirchik, J. Thomas Eaton, Derek Pite, Matthew Kelly, Adrian Murchison, Brent Vickers. Uh, thank you so much for making this show possible. Thank you so much for making 52 episodes possible a whole year of podcast possible it honestly would not be possible without you guys everyone it uh, produces an all everyone that's supporting the nation it would not be possible honestly so um for those of you in the nation definitely check out if you haven't already Chris's dragons video that rob and i made last week check out the cyborg guy that's in the google drive and check out the different uh cyborg guys of the current standard metagame that uh, our team has created uh, with the help of now Alex Bianchi is on, on the team. Uh, I mentioned that last episode, I think, or, or on the video that we had done, Rob, where uh, Alex Bianchi, the last Splinter Twin GP champions on the team now to tweak the sideboard regularly. And if there's a deck in there that, uh, if there isn't a deck that's in the Google Drive that you would like a sideboard guy for, shoot me a message and we'll try to get it to you as soon as possible. And so with that, with, with me, Brian, and Rob, we'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys. Oh,